Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. This week, the spotlight shines on Teresa Vibberts. Teresa is an EVP and head of North American Booking for performing arts agency CAMI, Columbia Artists Music. A conservatory-trained percussionist, Teresa got her start in the business as an intern at SNL, has produced films for renowned music photographer and director Danny Clinch, and has been with CAMI for well over a decade. Teresa has had an inspiring career path so far. Listen in while we unpack her journey. You have such an interesting background, and um, I'd like to unpack how you got to what you do now um, and maybe take a little walk through, um, you know, some of the steps along the way. Um, But I'd love to start by asking, um, you know, how and when did you decide to make a career in music? Was it something you always aspired to? And did you have intention about it? Um, you know, how, how did you how did you come to be in the business? Gosh, I mean, I think a part of me always wanted a career in entertainment. Um, I, I wanted a, I wanted a career where from a very young age, I wanted insurance and I wanted a, a steady paycheck. And I was lucky that, you know, I was talented at music and that got me a scholarship uh, to a conservatory. But even then, you know, when, when all of my, my time, well, I was working, but in school was spent like playing music, I always knew I wanted something that wasn't on the stage, but related to it. So I'd say, you know, in, in, in probably middle school, high school, I had this fantasy, not necessarily about the music business. I think it was entertainment based, but I always fantasized about being a very busy businesswoman running around a big city. That's what I always fantasized. That was the plan, like busy woman running around a big city. And um, here we are, I I am busy and it is a big city, New York. So I guess it started pretty early, but you know, not from like, you know, little, little kid. Yeah. And um, why that particular self-conception, you know, like, were you, were you, were you modeling someone or, you know, what, what was about that specific sort of dream fantasy aspiration? Gosh, no one's ever asked me that. I have no idea, honestly. Um, My mom always worked in sales. So I got to see her at, she sold everything from used cars to greeting cards to vitamins. So I got to see someone running around selling and I liked that part of what she did, but in terms of a big city, there was very little exposure. I do know, you know, at one point uh, we got a refrigerator and I asked if I could keep the box when I was very little and I turned the box into a little office and then I would hold meetings in this creepy little refrigerator box. But it's not, it's not like I ever like lived with anyone growing up that, that had a, an office job or anything. So I have no idea where it came from. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, no, that's fascinating. So what, um, 
what instrument did you play? Uh, percussion. Yeah, I'm a drummer. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And so, all right. So you, you went to, you said you went to conservatory. I did. Yeah. So I, um, in, it's actually kind of funny cause I thought you might ask me about this. So I was trying to think how the heck did I even start playing percussion? And I think it was one day in elementary school. Um, I thought it might be kind of cool, you know, like maybe I'll play an instrument and I mentioned it to my mom and then forgot about it. And then, you know, a few weeks later, she, she had told me I, I was now playing percussion for like the elementary school band or whatever. And that sort of just snowballed. Um, I had a really great band director in middle school. And in high school, um, I could sight read, which just changed everything as a percussionist because I could mm -hmm. read rhythms, but I, I had studied piano. So I could play all these melodic percussion instruments. And so I started getting recruited into these things called like winter drum line and um, these, these really huge uh, groups called drum corps. I don't know if you've ever heard of drum corps, but it's, sure. it's kind of like the culture is kind of like Star Trek conventions. It's this whole subculture where you go on tour every summer for three months at a time. You spend like eight months, once a month going to weekend auditions. And um, between that and playing in high school and wanting a college education, however I could get it, uh, it turned into me um, auditioning for a couple colleges for music and Capital Conservatory of Music in Columbus, Ohio gave me the best scholarship. So off I went to play yeah. a marimba. <laughs> so, all right, that, that's, that's the other thing I was going to ask you. When you say percussion, um, like, what does that encompass? Do you sit down at a trap set and play or is it it's what you alluded to before, sort of like the suite of percussion instruments how, like when when somebody says i'm a percussionist how should i hear that or what should oh, i gosh. picture i mean usually if a drummer's a drummer they'll say i'm a drummer and yeah. they play kit they play jazz drum rock drum um usually if someone says i'm a percussionist it's either uh melodic world music or orchestral and then if someone's a timpanist especially in the orchestra world they'll say i'm a timpanist but all of those are you can say i'm a percussionist and for me you audition to go to school as a percussionist uh, and you play everything you play drum set you play marimba you play vibraphone um, you play timpani and then from there you know every every musician finds their specialty for me it was melodic percussion so the wildly practical instrument, marimba. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I was, I loved marimba, but it wasn't super practical. But hey, you know, I was really lucky at, at my percussion program. There was a, 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 a sort of budding music industry program. And I had an awesome professor who saw me working like three full-time jobs and sort of mentored me in a way where I could do internships and pursue playing, but almost as, as time went on, the playing became secondary to the music business degree. Yeah. Before I continue down that path with you, I, you know, you mentioned um, the world of drum corps and it being sort mm -hmm. of like the, that subculture. It, it, it's funny you mention it because I was thinking the other day I have, um, when I was, I, I'm, I'm a, probably a little bit older than you, but when I was a kid, there was this thing we used to go to every summer and I think it was a competition. We went as spectators. I think it was a competition. I don't think it was just an exhibition, but I'd have to do some research and unpack it. But it was a fife and drum yeah. thing. And yeah. I remember it very specifically. Like 
it was it was something that we were excited about going to. I have no idea why, because it was completely an anomalous thing within my family. Like I, you know, it wasn't like we were fighting; yeah. we were Civil War reenactors <laughs> or something. But um, but I remember it, you know, small snippets of it, but the snippets are very vivid. And um, it was such a bizarre. I don't know if it was a uh, um, if it sort of got popular again around the bicentennial, um, because I was sort of a, a little kid around that time. And there were lots of like Americana themed things that became popular for that short window of time. Um, but I remember it at, at having a very unique vibe and aesthetic. And I suspect it on the Venn diagram, it overlaps with what you're talking about with the drum corps world. <laughs> oh, it absolutely does. It, especially if it was in the summer, because that's when yes. it is. And it's usually competitive. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm glad you had that experience because you're right. There's nothing else like it in the whole world. Um, it's, it's awesome and bizarre and unique and it, it, you know, it changes your life and you take, you know, in my, my case, it was, I think 15 to 21 year olds who were on these tour buses three months at a, at a time, back to back dates all over the country are competing with other essentially like fife and drum groups like you described. And it's not glamorous. I mean, you know, if you're not sleeping on the van or the bus on the way to the next show, they, they book you in uh, high schools and you sleep on high school gyms and then like shower in those, those showers that probably never get used. Um, and then you, you rehearse all day in the summer heat on those like high school and sometimes college football fields. That's where so, it was. Uh, the, the, yeah. the events were at the, at our local high school in the football field and the, and the spectators were in the stands that would normally be where you'd sit for a football game. That's exactly what it was. Oh yeah. You, you've seen it then you've experienced drum corps. And it marked my life. <laughs> this is like 45 <laughs> years ago. And last from the past, right? It's, it's alive <laughs> and well, I'll tell you that much. Wow. That's incredible. So you're, um, you're in school, you're studying music, you you're, you're also studying the music business. Is that, is the genesis of that a hedge because there's so few slots for marimbaists or, um, you know, like why not make the career as on the performance side? You know, I've been reflecting on that a lot in these last couple, maybe this last year. I think, you know, in the zeitgeist, there's all this conversation around privilege now. It's such a buzzword and what that means. And it's sort of given me space to reflect on like, hey, why didn't I pursue performance more aggressively? Um, and, you know, I, I, I stood out as, as the one of the students in the conservatory who was like waiting tables across the street, working at the library, teaching private lessons, um, doing work study. Uh, literally, I remember once walking down the hallways of the conservatory and one of the professors being like, hey, shouldn't you be across the street serving meatballs? Because um, they were just more used to seeing me work. And I, and I loved performing. And what I've always told myself is I was so much better at getting myself the gigs than I was at actually playing them. And that's true. But I wonder, looking back on it, had I not had to work all those jobs and if I had more time to practice, because that's what it takes. You have to practice. Uh, I just didn't have the time with working those shifts. Maybe I would have wanted to pursue performing more aggressively. It's something I've been questioning recently, but I don't know. I think, I think if I really wanted it, I'd be doing it. I usually show up for myself. So I, I'll circle back then to, to my initial statement, which is, you know, I wanted security. 
I wanted, I always pictured myself as some type of business. And even at the time I was getting so many gigs, it was easier back then to, to be, there was a, there was a niche, a girl drummer. People liked that, you know, I was one of the few. Um, and I was getting more gigs than some of these percussionists that were much better than me. So I was good at getting the gigs. Um, not as good at playing them. <laughs> what, um, what kind of gigs did you like? Did you care what, you know? a great question i mean it was weird i mean it was everything from like uh, you know in college you get really interesting offers like they'll bring in a ringer for like a high school musical to play drum set in the pit you know and so you're with all these high school kids and you come down there and it's like super awkward so like who's this like adult down here church services i don't know if you know this that's really a, a common thing for them to pay percussionists to come in and play for church services um, I played some world music gigs, which I really liked at like dance halls, you know, Lawrence, as I'm saying it, I didn't, I didn't love any of them. Actually, drum corps was probably the most fun I ever had performing. Um, I gigged a little when I got to the city, when I moved to New York, I played timpani with the New York repertory orchestra. That was pretty cool. But yeah, I guess if I really think about it, I, I don't know if you had this experience, but in drum corps, uh, sometimes you have like a stadium filled with fans. Nothing beats that, you know, yeah. uh, hitting a downbeat on a percussive instrument with a bunch of people clapping for you. Um, so a little bit of this, a little bit of that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, it kind of brings it into focus then that um, I think what you said before, like if it was what you wanted, you would have probably gone hard after it. And uh, yeah. yeah. All right. So then um, how does the, What's the first, what's the first sort of music business job? Oh gosh. I mean, it's the best job anyone could ever get. I had just turned 21 from Columbus, Ohio, and I loaded everything I owned into my car, drove to a hotel in Brooklyn that I had found would let me put my like six months rent split up on three credit cards. Uh, so I could intern in the music department of Saturday Night Live. Incredible. That kind of, yeah, that kind of changed everything for me. <laughs> All right. So what does an intern in the music department at Saturday Night Live do? Oh, gosh. I mean, what don't they do? Um, I was really lucky because at the time I was hired by Lenny Pickett, who is the director yeah, of, of the band. And he also runs the music department. And, you know, he hired me over the phone. And he asked me really just two questions. He asked if I knew what timpani were, because I guess he had seen that I was a percussionist. And the answer was yes. And he asked if I knew Pro Tools. Um, and you know, the answer was also yes. And I found out later that I was in this awesomely unique position because even in the music department, 90% of the interns they get were actors and actresses who wanted to like get on the show. And that was their thing. So I think he was just so excited to have someone who you know, understood the nuances of what the band might need. And there was an awesome music production coordinator who had just been hired and it was her first season. And she was not a musician, but an amazing mentor to me. So it created this space for me to do what I was told was, was a, a bit more than the average intern. Um, so my big jobs were meeting and greeting the talent, the music talent, when they would arrive at SNL. So you know, I'd be like, hi, Kanye West. I'd meet him on the street. I'm Teresa. Welcome to Saturday Night Live, you know, and then it kind of take him around, work with hospitality, make sure all the rider uh, needs are met in terms of hospitality. I would do Pro Tools. I would record um, 
the house band. Everybody liked to have a recording in the band afterwards. So I did that session every week. And anything, I guess, gosh, this is such a flashback, random stuff. Like, you know, they would need like orchestral chimes to be sampled for one of their weird skits. And so I'd like find the best vendor or like run around New York City looking for really obscure sheet music. Or sometimes I'd help hospitality if Ashley Simpson needed honey, but it had to be in a specific type of honey bear and the brand had to be right. Um, And these are all real examples. So a little bit of this and a little bit of that, just like my gigs. (laughs) Was it one season? One season. Yeah. Half a season. because It was an internship. Right. So yeah, I guess it was half a season. It was winter into spring. Gotcha. All right. So um, what was the, uh, did you work the sort of stereotypical SNL schedule or did the music department have a different routine? Like how did, what was a, what was that period of time like? It was incredible. I mean, and I was working also at a, a restaurant at Union Square called City Crab, which isn't there anymore. Oh, I know City so, Crab. So, yeah. oh yeah, yeah. I loved City Crab, right? M- made some of my best friends working at City Crab. Sort of right at the end of Park, right? Yeah, with the big yeah. crab. Yeah, Remember yeah, the big the crab, crab they had? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, oh yeah, I worked, I'm talking, I lived on, and keep in mind, I had just turned 21 and moved from Columbus, Ohio. Uh, so I was on pure adrenaline for like however many months that was. So we'd do two weeks on, one week off. That was the SNL schedule. And I was there, I think Mondays were off. And then, you know, the schedule would increasingly get more hours in the day until you let up to Saturday night. Uh, so I think I kept like pretty regular hours, Tuesday, Wednesday. But once Thursday hit, you're kind of on call. And I mean, I, I think probably if I like pushed back, um, you know, they would have had to or willingly respected that but that's not what i was there to do i was there to be there for whatever anyone needed at any time no matter what i think one night but you know what during the metro strike actually i found a way to get to brooklyn up to 30 rock and i was one of the few people who got in so i was running around doing stuff for like every department one day um but yeah saturday nights were intense uh i'd stay for the full taping um I remember one show, it was the Foo Fighters, and they had to cut one of the skits. And so the band was in the green room. And um, my boss, I think, was like somewhere else. I can't remember. And all of a sudden, they're calling the Foo Fighters for the final goodbyes, you know, at the end of the show. And so I I was just stepped in and I run and I get the Foo Fighters. I'm like, you've got to be on stage right now. And we like sprint there. And if you watch that episode, you'll see Dave Grohl, his shoes are untied. Like he's all disheveled. Um, And then I, I would get to go to like the after party. I'm sure I didn't get to go to like the super cool after party, but I went to like the initial after party and SNL was nice. They'd always, you know, the interns got a car. They would pay for a car to take you home. And I always thought that was very fancy. So you'd, you'd get home pretty late, but I mean, whatever. I was 21. I didn't yeah. sleep for like four months. It was awesome. Yeah. I mean, 21 in New York working at SNL. That's a career peak. I know. <laughs> I know. Good. I'm trying to get back to that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I really, I really like set the bar high for myself. And so what happens after that? What's the, what does that prepare you for or set you up to do? What did, what did you seg into after that? It was interesting. Um, from that, you know, the, the tricky part about SNL is it's so competitive And I think really, unless you're one of the top, top people, you're just not making any money 
at all. Um, and so it wasn't really, unfortunately, a sustainable option for me to kind of like keep doing that. Um, so I met a gentleman um, at, when I came back. So I came straight back to New York. I went back after SNL and I was like, I am in for New York City. And I graduated early, which rarely happens in a conservatory degree. And then I just, you know, hustled back to New York, went back to City Crab, started, you know, selling crab and met a man named Danny Clinch. And Danny Clinch is one of the most talented music photographers, at least in my opinion, and in the opinion of many others in the world. And I think at the time I met him, he was focused mainly on still photography. Uh, but Pearl Jam, who adored him, their label had asked him to direct their documentary in Italy. And because of that, and because he had started to do more and more film projects, music videos, documentaries, he decided to open a second shop. He had his photography studio. And at the time I met him, he was opening Three on the Tree Productions, his film and video studio, and he needed a studio manager. And obviously SNL on a resume looked good. Clearly I was hungry and ready to do anything. Um, so I told him I knew exactly what a studio manager did and I knew everything about film, which of course wasn't true at all. Um, which I only recommend to people younger than me. If I say you, you only lie, which is always, you know, if you're young and hungry, say what you've got to say to get the opportunity, but you've got to be able to back it up. You've got to know that you'll show up for whatever it is, is needed. And I knew, I knew I, I could, you know, figure it out. And I did. I ended up working with Danny from studio manager to head of production for several years. Wow. Yeah, it's funny you say that because whenever a younger person asks me like what my path was or how I got to where I am, as though I've gotten to be somewhere, um, <laughs> I always tell them like just swim in the deep end of the pool, like take on more than you think you're ready to do or take on the job that um is the one you want to have, even if, if there's no reason why you should get that job, like just, just sign up and go do it and figure it out and do the work and keep your ears more open than your mouth and, <laughs> and you'll figure it out and, and just, just be available. It. Right. Always be there. Always be there. Ready to say yes. Ready to jump in. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, that was always my philosophy. Um, and, and only in the last couple of years where I've seen it, you know, with people I've hired go the other way, have I added that caveat where it's like, always say yes, always jump in, figure it out later, but you have to kind of know you're going to figure it out. Um, yeah. I'm not saying, I'm not saying failure is not an option. Uh, I, I think we learn more from the failures. Uh, but you know, you, you got You got to at least believe that you could do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what are some of the projects you worked on with Danny? Oh my gosh. So many amazing things. Um, this is going to age me. So this is still back when like DVDs were, were like the hot thing. Um, we know. call them coasters now. <laughs> we call, I know exactly. We call them where's the donation bin in our house. Um, we, he was the, he did all the filming for Bonnaroo, the, the great music festival out in Tennessee. And so one thing I did as a production coordinator and then working at in-house uh, production for Danny was coordinating all the, all the shooting for the DVD of Bonnaroo. So it was like five stages, six stages, like Danny as a director, several other assistant directors, all the camera operators, all of the tech uh, and audio people, all of the PAs, 
Um, and it was producing. It was everything from the hotels they stay in to who's shooting what on what stage when to what happens if, hey, there's another Kanye reference, if he decides to not go on until six o'clock in the morning and we all go into overtime. Um, and it was just, it actually made me pretty sick from stress. I, looking back on it, yeah. I think I had a, an ulcer, but um, I loved it. I mean, production is like, I called it like production paranoia. You always have to have, you always have to be ready for what could go wrong before it goes wrong. Um, what else did we work on? Uh, oh, the one thing that was really special, which was more of a, a passion project for Danny, as I said, he was very close with the guys in Pearl Jam, specifically Eddie Vedder. And when he proposed to his wife, he asked Danny um, to go to Hawaii and shoot him playing love songs on ukulele for his wife. And we just, he decided he wanted to shoot it all on eight millimeter. So I was always in charge of, you know, sourcing the film, making a budget. I made so many budgets, you know, and you learn so much about, you know, these formats that are wildly expensive, but man, if you can afford it, it's beautiful and it's worth it. Um, and then we did a lot of shoots for John Barbados, who of course is this mm. designer who's like down with musicians. And so yeah. I, I would, you know, do production and budgets for like Dave Matthews, you know, playing like a one man band, cymbals on the knees, bass drum on his stomach, marching around in a Barbados suit in the West Village with a literal monkey on his back, like a literal, an actual alive monkey. And that you have to get like, you know, permits for that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah, <laughs> as you so should. You know, yeah, right. You just add a monkey willy nilly, you know, it's not, it's not the Wild West. Um, and, you know, it actually leads perfectly into where I went next, because in 2011 uh, was the last project I did working with Danny and uh, I was the line producer on a documentary with the Preservation Hall Jazz Band and mm -hmm. My Morning Jacket. Oh, it was amazing. Um, these two groups, different genres, but like such a respect for each other. And it was a shoot down in New Orleans. Um, so much about the culture and the history of Preservation Hall, uh, which if you don't, you don't know much about it, I highly recommend. Um, it was the film actually is a great resource to check out. It's called Live at Preservation Hall. And um, I was the line producer on that. And we, uh, we were, it was a bit dramatic. We were all set up to premiere at South by Southwest. And all of a sudden I started getting calls from the New York Times asking um, if I had a comment about how the film was financed. And the film had been a passion project. So it wasn't through a label or anything. And we had been financed by an executive producer out of LA, who it turns out his company had been financed by a Qaddafi. And it was not good. <laughs> and just I any Qaddafi or like a lesser Qaddafi? It was like a lesser Qaddafi, you know, but the name is not such good PR. And this is when everyone was giving, you know, the, the Qaddafi money back. Beyonce's giving it back. And you can't go against Beyonce. So we gave the money back. I accidentally went on record with the New York Times. Um, I can't remember what I said. Something to the effect of like, we're, we're, we're not evil. I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> like, um, and it was just, you know, the labels were changing. DVDs weren't a thing anymore. Danny was shifting back into photography more. And I had worked with the Preservation Hall Jazz Band. And if you're someone who has studied music the way I did, I was so lucky to work with all these pop stars with Danny, 
But after seeing and hearing all the interviews and all of the music from Prez Hall, my heart was like, I was, I was ready to go back into what they did, which I learned was the performing arts. I didn't really yeah. know it was a career path, but turns out it was. Yeah, they're a soulful group of, of people um, on the foundation and the business side, as well as the, the performers. It's really an amazing crew of people. Um, so then where'd you go? Well, I did a lot of what is called informational interviews, uh, ran around town talking to anyone I could in the performing arts. I talked to publicists, I talked to booking agencies, I talked to presenting organizations. And um, it turned out there's this amazing guy named Dan Lerner, who I was introduced to. He teaches, I think, what is the most popular class at NYU, which is called the Science of Happiness. Mm. Uh, and yeah, it's a really interesting guy. And he was an investor in a uh, firm called 21C Media Group, uh, who represents some of the world's greatest classical artists, uh, vocalists, musicians. Um, and they did all the PR for these great artists. So I met Dan, who then told me, you've got to talk to my business partner, Albert. So I met with Albert and um, I, I ended up not going to work for him. But this this wonderful man uh, really explained to me what the performing arts was, because, uh, again, it's it's pretty awful, actually, as someone with a music business degree that I didn't know being an agent and an artist manager in the performing arts was an option. My degree focused on like tech, which served me well, you know, Pro Tools going to SNL. Um, but he he just kind of explained to me, gave me the lay of the land, if you will. He did end up offering me a job. And I remember uh, when I was sitting with him and his team talking about the job, I got a call on my cell phone from the company I'm at now, which is Cami Music, making me the offer. And the way I met Cami Music, what, oh gosh, you know, it's actually a really funny story. Um, I was talking to like a colleague, a photo rep that repped Danny Clinch and she was on speakerphone in her agency. And I had said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm talking to this like PR firm, um, about the performing arts, but you know, after press hall, I think maybe I should be like an agent and her intern overheard the call and said, my roommate's an agent at a place called Cami Columbia artist management incorporated. Uh, and I, I met that roommate who then introduced me to his boss, who then introduced me to his boss. And that was like 10 years ago. Um, I, I was hired pretty much on the spot. I remember my, my I'm, I'm the EVP of the company now, but the president, the one person above me, uh, we sat in his office at Columbus Circle. And I was like, look, I don't really know this business, but I'd like to give it a try. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I think you should give it a try. He's like, I have a good feeling about you. And that was 10 years ago. So, so far, so good. <laughs> it's, it's played out well. Um, yeah. All right. So um, in so much as it's interesting to you to do, can you take me through um, the evolution of how of the role in those last 10 years? I mean, obviously it's multiple roles, but like what was what were you doing day one and um, how did you grow? So in a, in a performing arts agency um, here in the, the States or, you know, globally, there's kind of three major roles. There's a booking agent, uh, a producer, and an artist manager. Uh, sometimes you can be all three. Sometimes you can just be one. Usually it's just one. And sometimes you can be both. Usually what happens is um, you either become the best booking agent in the world and keep doing that, 
or uh, you you develop a, a roster and you become a booking agent and then you you build that into becoming an artist manager, which is what I did. So when I started at Cami, um, like I said, like uh, you know, we had no idea if I would be good at it or not because I didn't know what it was. Um, so I was given a, a territory, right? So it's it's very much like what my mom did, you know, selling vitamins, driving around. You give a territory, you have people you're supposed to sell stuff to. Um, I was given, I think, like North Carolina and West Virginia, like pathetic, you know. <laughs> and um, a, a gorgeous roster of artists. Cami Music is one of the finest performing arts agencies in the world. I, I, I in a lot of ways, I got very lucky because I didn't have a huge knowledge for this business. Um, so to land at an agency um, at that level was pretty lucky. And um, you know. Sales can sometimes, especially in the more uh, performing arts, sophisticated world, be looked at as a dirty word. I don't think it is at all. I love sales. I love being able to pair the right content with the right consumer. And to me, that's what sales is. Um, and so I, I, I did quite well. It's a very quantifiable job. You just look at, you know, which artists are getting booked where and for how much. And I also... Uh, had been on tour for so many times. So I understood how to route a tour. I, I, I had real life experience about what that would feel like, how, how long you might want to travel between dates. And I think as the years went on, it happened pretty quickly. You know, my midi territory turned into the Southeast, which turned into the Northeast and the Southeast. Then I added on the Midwest, that poor guy that had recommended me for the job. I ended up taking his territory. He landed somewhere else awesome though. Um, then I, uh, we hired new bookers and I took over the West coast. Then I became the national director of booking. And then I started to sign artists and that was about five years ago. Um, and now I, I manage artists full time and I also oversee, uh, pretty much, uh, all of our, our North American efforts in terms of sales strategy, all of that. Okay. So, um, I kind of want to look at a for instance. So the um, the buyer is typically in a PAC, that type. Yeah, of we we call them presenters in the performing okay. arts. Yeah, so we've got okay. we've got yeah, like like promoters, right? Who are more commercial promoters, but uh, you know Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center. In our world, we call them presenters. Gotcha. Okay, and you're representing sort of classical or classical pop like crossover like something that um you know is going to put butts in seats in those rooms and um and that that is done as a tour those aren't sort of uh fly-ins they're those, those are those artists perform as touring musicians yeah i mean it's mostly that um so you know in the performing arts uh, it's it's kind of any genre, right? So we represent the, the breadth of genres, theater, jazz, crossover, dance, classical. Um, it's it's both anything that has a high level of artistic integrity, uh, but but that also can enrich a community, um, which is one of the reasons I, I left the more commercial side. I felt like the performing arts was a more ethical use of my time. I feel like so much of the performing arts is rooted in cultural programming. And that's everything from Hungarian dance to hip hop, which is two projects I happen to represent. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then usually I would say, actually, I've got it right here. Right now, I've got 27 artists on our roster. And no, actually, 
actually way more than that. So about 50 artists on the roster. Uh, but right now I have 24 artists slash projects that are anything from one week to six week, what I call rooted tours. That means um, two years in advance, you, you, you sign an artist. And uh, hopefully you're, you have my experience where you understand the North American market and the presenters all over the country and what they book, when they book it, and for how much. And then you use that knowledge to sign an artist. And if you're a creative partner, you're, you're talking about the content, the project, how we might want to change it or create it. Uh, and then you start selling uh, for, for two years in advance. That's how you do the tours. Wow. And then in the classical world, it is a lot of like one-offs, right? So you might have the greatest pianist in the world, which in my opinion, we do have long, long, who we're, we're booking, you know, run out dates all over the world for 2024, maybe even 2025 right now. And um, in the performing arts world, does the talent fee vary much or is it um, not to pick on long, long, but like, is his <laughs> fee, what his fee is, or does, is there a geographical variance? Like how, what, what are the analogs to sort of the pop commercial world? How does, how does that work? Do you have to be flexible or is it like, this is the rate and this is what it is? It was interesting because when I, I had seen so many like door deals on the commercial side mm. versus deals and then when I got into the performing arts, it was all guarantees. And I was like, this is so luxurious, you know, <laughs> like you just get paid a flat fee. Um, but that's more on the presenter side. On our side, when we set the fee for the artist or the project, uh, it, it depends on a number of different things, you know, like who's their competition, if they have any in the market, what will the ticket prices be? And also, you know, it's different in the performing arts because a lot of the venues that we bring these artists to are subsidized. Maybe that's university subsidy, mm -hmm. government subsidy, and a lot of them, their, their main income isn't ticket income, it's fundraising. And so they fundraise and they're able to go and fundraise, um, ironically, uh, when they lose money on an engagement. And that's how they're able to fundraise. They're able to say, look, there might not be a huge audience for ballet in Nashville, but we know that you want to be a part of a community that doesn't let this art form die. And if you wonder why, uh, I guarantee if you look to all the dancers performing with, to reference Beyonce again, as an example, those dancers, nine times out of 10, they, they studied ballet or they studied modern dance. So these art forms are, are <clears throat> just crucial, crucial to anything that we see, at least in my opinion, on any commercial stage, uh, a perfect reference is Lizzo, one of the biggest stars in the world. And one of her greatest references and greatest inspirations is Sir James Galway, um, the man with the golden flute, who I happen to represent. Uh, so that's a perfect example of how we need these fine arts genres represented because they impact, I think, everything that we see on a performing stage. My goal is to get those younger ticket buyers who want to see Lizzo, but would never see Sir James Galway to come and see Sir James Galway. Yeah. And is that, does that happen? It's starting to more and more every day. Um, I work with Quincy Jones Productions and right before the, uh, gosh, I mean, it was February of 19. So really right before the shutdown of the world, um, we uh, did a, a 
orchestra show with the Seattle Symphony of music of Quincy Jones. And we used one of the best conductors, orchestrators in the world, a guy named Jules Buckley, who is exclusive to Quincy Jones. He is the one guy Quincy will let orchestrate his catalog of music. And we brought in, you know, incredible soloists, singers, uh, rhythm section, uh, guitarists. But it was the Seattle Symphony playing Thriller, orchestrated for, you know, a, a big orchestra. And it was incredible. I mean, the ticket buyer, I was there. It was everything from, you know, people that are older than either of our grandparents to people, you know, way younger than me, way cooler than me. And I asked, I asked a lot of people, have you ever been to a show here? And so many people said no. It was the first time they'd ever seen an orchestra show in their entire lives. Yeah, the Seattle Symphony actually programs some interesting sort of pop crossover things. Um, I've seen a few a few evenings there. And to your point, it's, it's um, they're doing a good job of bringing in different audiences. Um, I saw Dvachka there one night with the symphony. Oh, it was, cool. Yeah, it was beautiful. I mean, it was, it was really stunning. And I always, whenever I go to one of those events, I, I, the business side of me comes out and I sit there thinking like, what did this cost? Like, and, and mm -hmm. like, did the symphony actually rehearse for a few days? And like, how did they pull that off? Or are they, these people just walking out and playing from the score? Like, it's, it's really amazing when you know what goes into getting a symphony to the stage. Um, and it's probably a 50-50 chance that there was very little rehearsal. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. I mean, I think you're right with certain orchestras, but this is actually a fun sort of inside baseball thing. Um, you know, another great way that I think the performing arts is bringing in ticket buyers to halls, like what you just described, is through film, right? Through, mm. through any type of screen. This is... Uh, a trend that we're seeing almost too much now in the symphony hall, but Cami Music, long before I got there, uh, conceived of this notion with Howard Shore, who of course is the composer for all of the Lord of the Rings. And the company I'm at um, really pioneered this concept and we still do it to this day. Uh, I'll tell you, Howard Shore, you know, is the original music director of Saturday Night Live. And years ago, and I, I had this little picture of him next to my tiny little desk in the music studio of SNL, and fast forward like 15 years and I was sitting with Howard Shore in Boston after I had booked The Lord of the Rings in Boston. Um, and it was really kind of a cool, not full circle, but let's say half circle moment for me. Um, but the artistic integrity is key. And so when a symphony wants to play something like all of the music to Return of the King with a hundred person choir, the full orchestra, the vocalist, uh, we are wildly protective of what you just said, how many rehearsals there have to be. We, we as an agency and as, a, you know, I, I want to say stewards, but like protectors of the artistic yeah, integrity of, of the performing arts, uh, we can't let things fall below a certain threshold of quality. And it's actually a point of contention because orchestras have to pay musicians to rehearse, which they yeah. should. That's their yeah. jobs. And we require a lot of rehearsals. Because uh, film music especially is, is pretty complicated. Those studio musicians get to do a couple takes. But when you're playing it live, you've got to really be rehearsed. The, the, I mean, think about percussion running around back and forth. You're going to want to have sectionals going into that. So we actually are very protective of uh, how much rehearsal is done going into projects like that. And so what's that look like? What is, what is a lot of rehearsal? Is it days? Is it a week? Is it, how is it paid for? Is it reflected in the ticket price? Like how does, how does that work? 
So orchestras um, have services. So when you're an orchestral, orchestral musician, you get hired and, and you're told, you know, here's your contract and it's this many performances per year and this many rehearsals. And so you've got a bucket of performances, a bucket of rehearsals. And then the orchestra leadership decides in programming how they'll divvy up those services. Oh. Yeah, because they've already told the musicians they're going to pay them. So it's really up to then the artistic leadership of the orchestra and then someone like me to sell them on my ideas. And it's really a partnership and a collaboration. It's a fun process. Um, and then what we do is we say, oh, well, we need, you know, six rehearsals. And they say, that's too many out of our bucket of rehearsals. We'll give you three. We'll say, no, we need six. And that's all part of the negotiation. And that's where being a musician is wildly helpful because, you know, if you understand the level of orchestra, the talent of the musicians, that can all be very nuanced. And maybe there is flexibility in rehearsals. Usually not because, again, it's about quality and that's very important in our business. Uh, but anything's possible. Showbiz. What's a rehearsal? Like, is it is a rehearsal a technical definition? Is it on site? Uh, instrument in hand for four hours or like you know what constitutes a rehearsal yeah that's it. literally that's it there's there's or there's the full orchestra rehearsal a dress rehearsal and then there's sectionals um which is like you know just just in my case i keep referencing it because like you know the percussion sectional uh but yeah it's exactly that right uh, well and then there's the technical technical rehearsal too where you do a tech run through um and that's usually if you don't need a tech rehearsal, if you're not using a screen. So that's when you're doing the film projects. Yeah. In those, in those uh, presentations where you're doing, say the music of return of the King, is that generally set to the film or set to scenes from the film or is there not a screen? Oh, it's definitely set to the film. And it's one of yeah. the coolest shows you will ever see. Um, when I first started dating my husband, um, he's from Philadelphia and I invited him and his whole family to the Man Center, the big amphitheater, to see um, the Fellowship of the Ring, the full film on a huge mega screen with a full orchestra, a hundred person choir, and you got to watch the entire film with all of the music, all of the sound effects played live. And um, wow. you get to hear, and those are super fans too. I mean, you know, you get to hear people cheer when, you know, uh, Frodo's theme comes on, you know, and you get to hear people, you know, make all their noises when the Eye of Solomon appears and that music is played uh, and it's really powerful. And I think it made such an impression on my husband and his family as well. It's like, I feel like, hey, I have a cool job. You're what a closer. Mean? That was yeah, pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those were <What> <laughs> either <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the um if there are any what what stand out to you as sort of programming trends what's what's hot now in the pac space what's emerging are there things like you know video game music or you know what what are what are some of the things you're seeing yeah i mean definitely video game music i think that's we're, we're a few years past video game music um we i'm seeing you know the the film with with orchestra that trend, it's, it's pretty, it's kind, it's kind of all, it's everywhere now, basically. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of waiting for the next great thing. Um, and in the performing arts, you know, it's hard to say because we in the live touring, uh, you know, any type of entertainment business have just been clobbered, right? Um, yeah. I'll tell you, what's hot right now is 
any group that can can stay COVID negative and get visas and get into the country and put a show on. Um, I actually have six tours on the road right now. I'm, I'm pleased to report, but I, I Are think, they you know, uh, a lot of them have bubbled and that was more like last summer. I came yeah. up with a lot of bubbling things. Now things are calming down. People have home tests. Um, people are wearing masks. There are mandates, some parts of the country. And in the performing arts, I think we're seeing a trend of crossover and, and, and that's kind of a broad term. So the way I describe it is like, if you pick a project that can tell two stories, if you pick a project like a jazz band that plays beautiful jazz music, but then you add the fact that they're going to play jazzy renditions of cartoon music live to screen, that's a group I represent. Or if you want to see uh, a dance company, but a modern dance company, but it happens to be a modern dance company that's hip hop, that's completely based in like a, a, a street urban dance company, which is a company we represent as well called Memphis Jukin, um, formed by this guy, Lil Buck, who, I mean, you'll, I, think, I think you'll see him on Broadway in a couple of years. Um, or if you want to hear the best classical music in the world, you might have been the greatest pianist in the world. It might happen to be an artist who has more digital streams than Gregory Porter or Bocelli. Uh, classical music and digital streaming platforms, that world has not really collided in terms of the ticket buyer. But I've signed an artist who that's, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Um, so I think you've just, you got to tell two stories now because the performing arts is a typically older audience. And as people get older, they, they eventually pass away. And so you've got to be always thinking about that next generation without alienating that, that, that older generation. Before I let you go, could you just to stay with me in the, in that world for a minute, could you talk about a couple of the, um, you know, there's like some more real evergreen brands, um, in that space in general and in particular that you work with and, um, you know, how do you maintain uh, an evergreen brand like that? And how dependent is it? Like, I'm curious about the inner workings of say like moment shots, like how does that work? And like, you know, it's so as a consumer, I don't, you know, there's no people that's, I don't know who they are or what they are. Or, um, I mean, I can, I was afraid of them when I, <laughs> When I was a yeah. little kid. <laughs> I've had to stop doing like elementary school educational shows because it freaks kids out. Yeah, yeah you're terrifying. Not you're not alone. <laughs> but like, you know, how how does it it seems like it's an alternate sort of shadow universe of 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 brand, if I can use that word. And so how is it maintained and marketed and um and sort of communicated generational? How is it passed on? Yeah, and it's a very timely question because uh, 2022, a tour I'm uh, close to finished booking for them, the fall of 22 in North America, will be their 50th anniversary tour. So this is a company that 50 years ago did three years of sold out shows on Broadway, did everything from Johnny Carson to Sesame Street. Yeah. Uh, and, you, you know, I think one thing that's really important to also mention is we're a global agency. So this is a company that is uh, just added, um, I think, like 10 dates in Zurich. Uh, they just toured uh, Europe and sold more than 40,000 tickets, literally as of like today. 
Um, so physical theater, miming, puppetry, I think sometimes these things are an easier sell nowadays in Europe, maybe, especially places like Switzerland, Germany. Uh, but here in North America, um, the way I talk about it is, first of all, exactly what you just said. There is a nostalgia to it. Uh, we're at the level now where 50 years later, I can go to a market in North America and we can sell it in print to the grandparents, radio to the parents, and um, give kids prices to the little kids. Maybe the grandparents and the parents want to bring their, their younger children to see this show. And uh, shockingly, one of their founders is still alive, touring with the company and creating new content, beautiful pieces that are, I know she's an amazing woman. You know, in 50, well, 49 years, we sent the company to Abu Dhabi a few months ago, and unfortunately she tested positive for COVID, no symptoms, but couldn't go. She told me it's the first, and to this day, only performance she's ever missed in 49 years of Mum and Sean's. And they tour everywhere, year round. Um, she's creating new pieces, pieces that are a reflection of technology, pieces that are a reflection of the COVID pandemic. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, it's it's an original art form that has been reinvented a million times since then by other companies. And in that case, uh, it's what I said, nostalgia, um, authenticity for what it is, and uh, new content as a part of the program. What category uh, is their form considered? Is it mime? Is it dance? Is it movement? Like, I, I don't know what you would, like, how do you, what do you call them? So it's physical theater. That's the exact definition. And then in terms of how you would see them, if you were going on the website of Lincoln Center to buy a ticket, it would either be under theater. And even some people have put it on um, like a family series because it gotcha. is it does cross yeah. generations. And so that it's similar, like Palobolus would be similar movement. Yep, just yeah, like, yep, Globalis, Momics. Yeah, all of, yeah, exactly, exactly right. Yeah, that's a fascinating business and fascinating world, wow. Well, I'll get, I'll keep you posted. They're going to be all over the Northeast fall of 22. So I'll get you tickets. Yeah. I would love to see them. Thank you. Um, I guess uh, the, uh, the only other question I have before uh, on that specifically, before we start to wrap up is, um, is it just one company or are there multiple touring versions out there at any given time? Um, in, uh, uh, for mom and chance or for anyone I represent? I guess I, I was thinking moment shots, but in general, is that, is that a model you see that it's, it's one core entity or do you tour multiples? It's usually singular. It's usually singular the same way that, you know, you're not going to go see Foo Fighters and, and they're like, you know, second band or whatever. Um, there are a couple ex uh, exceptions. I represent a surf company. Uh, who I can have like three casts traveling the world at the same time, which is awesome. That's what you want. People love Cirque. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but I'd say uh, generally it's going to be singular, one company. Uh, in, modern, in dance, you'll see it sometimes. With Alvin Ailey, they have Ailey 2. Uh, with ABT, who I represent, they also have ABT Studio Company, the young professional company, who I also represent. Um, so it's a little bit of both, but mostly singular. If there, there's one company, one tour, one brand. And is the draw of the Ailey or the ABT example um, not so much that you're going to see the lesser company, it's that you're going to see like the stars of tomorrow and maybe you'll see somebody on the way up and that's exciting? Like what's the appeal to the audience? 
I hope that's part of the appeal. Yeah. I mean, ABT studio company, something like 80% of their principals in ABT come out of the studio company. Like Misty Copeland came right out of the studio company. And also if you're a presenter in Santa Fe and you want your audience to have access to this incredible globally known ballet company, you might not be able to afford the epic fee to get ABT to come and play a full week of performances but, and this just happened last fall, you can afford a fee to bring ABT Studio, the young company, and give your audiences that experience to see, like you said, the next legends of dance. And also when you're the younger company, you can be a, be a little riskier. We just premiered a piece commissioned, uh, which we put together with for Chick Korea's children's songs before he passed oh, away. Wow. Wow. And that's something, you know, that's not Swan Lake. That's something a little, a little different. And it was very very meaningful and powerful. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a brilliant business innovation too, though, to have that, that sort of lesser fee company doing, you know, well-known powerful repertoire to your point, maybe doing something a little different that the main company wouldn't do. Um, that's a great, it's a great innovation. Oh, well, I'll let you know next time they're touring. I've actually got them headed out. Um, this spring in a couple months, I'll send you some dates if you want to go see them. Cause That's that nice. piece, especially I, uh, cause I, I represented Chick Corea. I was with him at his last Grammys and um, I, I may have started sobbing in the audience when I saw that piece for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there's a lot more I would love to talk to you about. Maybe, uh, maybe someday we'll get to do a, a, a follow-up conversation, but um, thank you so much for making time. Yeah. Lawrence, I had a, a really great time. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Teresa Vibberts and the team at Cami. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. If you like what we're up to here, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Join us again next week, and in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Sometimes all I think about is you Late nights in the middle of June He always been faking me